Which of these two houses would you rather live in? The first house, you've got all the riches you want, living with wealthy people, and you can have as much as you want, as much good food, as much technology, whatever you want. But the people in the house hate each other, hate you, and are at constant conflict with you and with each other. That's one house. In the other house, you don't have much. You're getting by, but you don't have a lot. But the people in the house love each other and love you and are regularly at peace and friendship with you and with each other. Which of those two houses would you rather live in? If you would choose the house that doesn't have much, but where there is love and peace, that's a mark of wisdom. Because the Proverbs say, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than much hatred with a fattened calf. A house that doesn't have much but has love actually has great riches because peace in your closest relationships is that valuable. Now, if that's true, let's, let's just extend that wisdom out to the level of a nation. Would you rather our nation have great prosperity or peace with other nations? Well, peace would be more valuable because the prosperity won't last long if our enemies can come in and can rout us. In fact, you can't really have much prosperity as a nation if you don't have peace with your neighbors and with the other nations of the world. Peace is worth more than riches and prosperity even for a nation. And if that's true, let's back up to our biggest, most important relationship of all. What about our relationship with God? If you were at war with God... How much would you give to have peace with him? Would you rather everything that is sideways in your life right now be fixed and made right, but the cost is that you have to make war with God to get there? Or would you rather everything that's sideways in your life turns fully upside down and gets even worse, but as a reward, you've got peace with God forever. How valuable is peace with God to you? I ask that because we are going to look today in one verse at the one way that we can have peace with God. And as we do that, we're all in danger of taking it for granted. For all of us, I think, would naturally say, oh yeah, peace, of course I have peace with God. Yeah, I've got peace with God. I want to move on to the next thing without realizing what a valuable pearl the Lord is laying before us. There's one way to have peace with him. And in one verse, we will read just what it is that you can take hold of yourself and know that you have peace with him forever. Let's look together at Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where we will find one great pearl, the one way that you can have peace with God. Spirit says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The words of the Lord. And through them... He offers you peace today. Let me back up and recap what's going on here in this whole book. Now, with a lot of advantages to the way that we're doing preaching these days, kind of skipping around rather than going through one book, one of the disadvantages is that we jump into the middle of a book and we haven't gone through all of the stuff there. So often I have to back up and give you the whole story. Here's the whole story with Romans. What's going on here? It's made up of 16 chapters. Paul writes it to Rome, to the church in Rome. So that would be kind of like the church in New York City, like the 
city of the day to the church there, powerful, influential in many ways, and he gives to them many great truths. He spends the first 11 chapters just drilling into them not only the truths of the gospel and of Jesus Christ, but how glorious these truths are. He tells us about this glory and that glory, and by the end of it, we're meant to just be amazed at this gospel that the Lord God has offered to us. That's chapters 1 through 11. And then in chapters 12 through 15, he says, okay, if God is that glorious and the gospel is that great, here's how we ought to live. And he spends the 16th chapter giving some greetings to people he knows in Rome and signing off. So we're now in this early section where he is telling us not only the truths of the gospel, but how glorious they are and how amazing God is. It's meant to leave us just trembling in wonder at this God who would offer peace and reconciliation to us. The first four chapters, everything we've gone through so far or would have gone through if we were going through Romans, really has one point, and that is that we are made right with God through faith. We cannot earn our way back to God. We can't do good works to get back to God. We can't follow enough laws or do enough good deeds or there's no, not enough money we have to buy a ticket into heaven. Only way that we can be made right with God is through faith. And in the most recent chapter, in chapter 4, he shows that that was true even of our hero Abraham in the Old Testament. Even he was justified by faith. Now we get to the beginning of chapter 5, and the first thing he does is recap what he said in chapters 1 through 4. That's the first half of the sentence. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, that's the point of chapters 1 through 4 summarized. Then he adds a new concept. Because of everything I just talked about in chapters 1 through 4, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the division of the verse we're looking at today. The first part is summarizing what you have in chapters 1 through 4. The second half adds a new idea to that. If you've ever sat in class or heard preaching or read a book that was meant to teach you stuff, you might be familiar with this teaching move, right? A teacher will teach you all sorts of things, and they're piling one idea on top of another. you got to understand one idea to get another one. And so they'll stop and they'll say, okay, let me recap everything I said so far. Here's the point of that. Now I'll add a new idea to it. That's what Paul's doing here. He recaps with the first half, then he adds a new idea there. So if you want to know how to have peace with God, this letter is going to tell you how to get there. But before we get there, we've got to look a difficult truth in the eye. And that is that if God is offering peace with mankind, well, what does that mean? That means that mankind naturally is at war with God. If God is willing to reconcile with us, then we must need reconciliation. Sometimes a married couple can be talking and one of them can say, you know what, I forgive you for the way you acted yesterday. And the other one gets offended and says, well, I forgive you for thinking I needed to be forgiven for the way I acted yesterday, right? Because if they're forgiving you, that means that you've done something wrong. There's the route we need to go down with and embrace first before we can understand even what this peace with God is. So let me zoom forward to verse 10, where he clarifies something that our hearts would all want to reject. He says very plainly in verse 10, for if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God 
by the death of his son. Now stop for a second there. So he's saying there that when Jesus died, what were we to God while we were his enemies? That's what we were when Jesus died. And that's what we still are without Jesus in our lives. That is not the first thing that we would think about typically when we think about God, right? In fact, if you were to stop the average person in the mall or on the street and just ask them, hey, if God is real, do you think you and God are on good terms? Most people would say, well, yeah, of course, right? God made me. He loves everybody. Yeah, God and I must be on great terms. It's not the inclination of our hearts to start with the assumption, well, I must be at war with God. That must be the state that we were all brought into. But the Lord crushes that assumption with words like this. He wakes us up and says, no, actually, because of what you have done, we are at war and need to be reconciled. Now, that's one assumption that these verses take care of. There's a smaller group of people who do believe that God must be at war with them. In fact, they assume that God must hate them. And the thing that they wrestle with is that God would ever offer them peace. These are people who look to God and say, why why would he ever welcome me, right? Well, the Lord takes care of that as well. No matter which camp you're in, whether you're one of the ones who doesn't want to admit that you've made war with God or one of the ones who doesn't want to admit or maybe just can't bear to think that God would ever offer you peace, today's verse takes care of both and will deal with both slowly. It calls both of these kinds of people into the kingdom of God. We'll start with the assumption that God must not be at war with us. We've got to ask the question, why are we at war with God? All right, sometimes when it's spoken of like this, uh, you almost feel like God must be a bad guy, right? If God makes war with mankind, is, isn't, he, isn't he loving? Doesn't his love go deeper into his heart than his anger does? Isn't he good? How can he be at war with mankind? That doesn't add up rightly in our minds. Well, to answer that, if we're wondering why and how we could be at war with God, we've got to back up two chapters to chapter three. If you don't mind flipping back there, I have to flip back just one page in my Bible to get to it. It's probably something like that for you. In chapter three, Paul outlines just why we are at war with God. And here's what he says. He strings together a bunch of Old Testament quotes. Why are we at war with God? Well, because, this is starting halfway through verse 10, because none is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is a stunning verdict of humanity. But I think if we just look around, we have to admit that it's accurate. Do we not curse each other when we're angry or full of bitterness against each other? Do we not lie when it's convenient? Do we not need a well-equipped police force because without them, we would kill and steal from each other? 
Our throats are an open grave. And if peace is a path that we can walk along with God, verse 17 says so plainly, the way of peace they have not known. We have chosen to depart from peace with God. That's important because we've got to understand that in our war with God, God is not the bad guy. God is the good guy. We are the bad guys. When he comes, and as we will read soon, takes vengeance on his enemies, he doesn't do so as a bloodthirsty villain. He does so as the good and righteous judge of humanity. We meet God at war because we are the bad guys. He's the good guy. We're the bad guy. The reason that the Lord stores up his arrows for us and will one day fire them upon us is because we keep shooting our arrows up at him. We've made war with him. And that is a reality that we must deal with before we can begin to appreciate or to receive the peace with God that he offers to us. One of Paul's earlier points is that this is true whether someone is a Jew or a Gentile, whether someone had access to God's law and his ways or not. Because no matter who you are, you've spurned and walked away from God's ways. It's true that God wrote down his law and his good ways for the people of God in the Old Testament, for the nation of Israel. But no sooner than he was riding them up on the mountain, they were down below rebelling in idolatry. And the rebellion got worse and worse from there. So much that the prophet Isaiah rises up in Isaiah 48 and just says, Oh, that you would have listened to my ways. Then your peace would flow like a river. And your righteousness would be like the sea. And a few lines later it says, But there is no peace for the wicked. There is no peace, the Lord says, for the wicked. So even if you've got access to his ways, if you've chosen to walk away from them, you've walked away from peace with God. And in another place, the Lord raises up the prophet Nahum to remind us of just how terrible this war with God is. I want to ask you to turn there, if you would, with me. Leave a bookmark or something in Romans. We'll turn back to it. But the prophet Nahum rises up because those who are enemies with God, which either is or was all of us at some point, we're all prone to take that lightly, right? To shy away from that and not worry about it. He raises up the prophet Nahum to let us see, no, that's a big deal. We can't take that lightly. He gives us stark images, the kind of images that we would read and just kind of want to pass over because we don't want that kind of picture of God. I'm just going to read them slowly so that we can all take seriously the war that we have made with God. This is written to the nation of Assyria, to the people of Nineveh. And is a picture of the war that all nations, all of us, have made with God. Here's what it says, Nahum chapter 1, I'll start with verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, keeps his wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in a whirlwind and storms, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. 
The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Church, if we can read that and not tremble at least a little at the war we have made with God and the devastating consequences of it, then let it just be a picture of how small God is in our hearts and how much more reverence he is due from us than we give to him. We cannot take lightly the war that we have made with God. And so where Paul lands in his letter is that no matter who you are, this is true of you. You've chosen war with God. The consequences are devastating when the man of war returns. He stores up arrows in his bow And rather than release them one at a time, he just continues to store them up. He's slow to anger, as the prophet Nahum says. He doesn't quickly react when we sin against him. Instead, he's patient, waiting for us to return as more and more arrows store up as we sin against him over and over again. But around the same time, the prophet Ezekiel was rising up. And he offered good news. He said to the people of Israel, I will make a covenant of peace with them. The God of war says, I'll make a covenant of peace with them. And I will put my sanctuary into their midst. And so we get there just a glimmer of hope. One day, he says, the son of David is going to rise up and he's going to rule my people. And when he comes, he's going to bring with him an everlasting covenant of peace. The terms will be laid out. It will be open to all. And anyone who wants to can come and sign their name and have peace with me forever. There's just a little hint of what it means in today's verse when it says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, a covenant of peace offered to us through the Son of David, Jesus Christ. The terms of the peace treaty are outlined in back to Romans 5 in, in verse 10, which we read already once, and I'll read again. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, how? By the death of his Son. Terms of the peace treaty are that the Son of God, Jesus himself, dies in our place. And as he died there, the Lord took every arrow that was stored up in his bow for us and he pointed it right at his Son, if you can bear to imagine it, and let loose upon his own Son in our place. As the prophet Isaiah says, he himself bore our sufferings, right? He was cursed for our iniquity. He was wounded for our transgressions. And on him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
His death is how we have peace with God. His substitute in our place dying for us is how we have peace with God. And I hope your heart longs to know how you can have that yourself. How do we receive that promise? How do I sign God's peace treaty? Well, the first part of verse 1 answers that, the part we already read a little bit, but I didn't explain when we read it. Since we have been justified, it says, by faith. That's how we receive this blessing. That's how we sign the treaty. He offers the promise, and we trust him in faith. Faith is just believing the promises of God when he makes them to you. So you have testimony in his word that he's willing to offer peace to everyone who will come and take it. You have testimony in his word that this is done through the death of his son. So faith is just to take him at his word, though you weren't there on the day of the crucifixion, didn't see it. You have God saying to you, I offer you peace, will you take it? And if you trust him, you say, yeah, I'll take you at your word and I will trust in the promises that you are making to me through your word. That is what faith is. And if we are willing to do that, then in our hearts, we are signing God's peace treaty, an everlasting covenant of peace initiated by God on high. That faith is how we are justified. To be justified is just to be right before God, right? to be declared by God, this person gets my stamp of approval. They are justified, right? For God to have his favor upon us, to be declared righteous. We are declared righteous before God when we have faith in his promises. And that righteousness can never be revoked and never be taken away from us. Now, there are a lot of reasons why we would want to justify ourselves, especially in this day and age. One of the big ones is being right in all of the arguments, right? We love to argue with each other about all kinds of issues. There's tons of arguments going on right now in homes, over politics, and online, and everywhere else. And often when you're engaged in one of these battles, you feel like you're in the right because your opinion is right, right? You feel justified in how you're talking and acting to this up toward this other person because, well, I'm right and they're wrong, and that justifies me. In our hearts, we will cling to just about anything for justification before God and man. But when we go before God in justice and judgment, he says, I'm not concerned with your confidence on the issues. I am concerned with whether you have faith in the promises I have made. You need to be reconciled to me. And if you will trust in me, you are justified before me. Justification comes only through faith. And because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want God's bow toward you to be empty, what you must do is cling to Jesus who offers to you forgiveness through his death offered in your place. That's faith. That will bring you justification. And for maybe some of us here in this room, all that remains is simply signing that peace treaty, the one that God has drawn up to you and offered to you he reaches out his hand to you with an olive branch in it and says, I will make peace. Will you sign my treaty? And I implore anyone who can hear this message today, if you have never done so, sign his peace treaty in your heart. Be reconciled to him and come back to true peace and fellowship with God. Now this peace that he offers us, 
it's not just a, okay, we won't be at war and we'll keep our distance kind of peace. It's, it's better than that. You can probably think of nations through history who have been at war for a while and then they come together at a peace meeting and they say, okay, we'll stay over here, you stay over there, we won't fight anymore and we'll be at peace, right? Nobody crossed the river and we've got clear boundaries now, so we have peace. That's peace, but it's not fellowship and friendship, it's we're not going to shoot each other anymore. Or you might think of a married couple who has fought over things for a while and eventually they figure out, okay, when I do X, Y, Z, it offends her. When she does A, B, C, it offends me. And so they come to this silent truce that says, okay, I won't do X, Y, Z. You don't do A, B, C anymore. And, you know, we'll still sleep in separate bedrooms, but we won't fight anymore, right? There are couples that do that. They come to a silent, not very friendly truce. There are nations that come to a signed but not very friendly truce as they dwell apart from each other. The Lord said in Ezekiel, not only will I make a covenant of peace with them, but I will put my sanctuary in their midst. I will dwell with them and we will have not only peace, but true friendship together. One of the best pictures of this peace comes from one of the blessings in the Old Testament. You can find it in the book of Numbers if you ever want to look it up. I grew up in a church that said it every week. Some of you grew up Lutheran, I know, and some of the Lutheran churches say it every week. The blessing goes, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's a picture of the kind of peace we have with God. He doesn't just stay out of our way and let us do our thing. No, he He blesses us. He showers us with blessing as his beloved children. And he keeps us. That means that the God who is a man of war and is said to be a man of war now walks beside you with his bow and arrows still in hand as your escort, as your protector through the trials of life, saying, no, no one snatches them out of my hand. I protect this one now. He blesses you and keeps you, and he makes his face, his glorious face, to shine down upon you from heaven. What fellowship and peace we have with this God who would be willing to shine his glorious face on us. I wonder if you've ever offended a friend or a family member, and because you offended them, they wouldn't take your calls anymore. They said, no, you're caught. You don't get to hear my voice anymore. We don't have that fellowship anymore. And then maybe for a while after a little bit, they started taking your calls again. I wonder if there was somebody who wouldn't let you see their face and wouldn't have a true conversation and fellowship with you because you offended them. Well, the Lord says, I show you my face every hour of the day. My spirit dwells inside of every Christian, shining my face upon you. I will always hear your prayers when you bring them. He says, I will always sanctify your worship when you offer it. We have an unbreakable fellowship, God says, to his people. This is not a God who denies our calls because we sinned against him. This is a God who welcomes us into his presence. Why? Because since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, that's a God that's worthy of all of our worship. In a few minutes, we're going to sing to him for the first time in about two months. 
And as we've had to go for a season without that, I pray that never again would any of us take for granted the privilege of singing before God, of a God who sanctifies our worship as we offer up imperfect praises to him. What a good and gracious God this is. Would we walk every day in all of his ways because he has made peace with us when we made war with him? Would we worship him with all of our hearts because he has made peace with us when we were at war with him? And if you have never signed it, I implore you in this very moment, trust God's promises and in doing so, sign the peace treaty that he offers to you. Let's pray together.